This is your fortnightly instalment where I interview a trailblazing physiotherapist that has shaped the profession we are today. In celebrating their journey, knowledge and insights, you gain the opportunity to plan and guide your own professional journey. My name is Dave Carey and welcome to Physio Plus 10. Okay, it's my pleasure today to welcome Jenny McConnell to Physio Plus 10. Jenny, I try and start these podcasts really with where it came from for you to become a physio. So why did you decide to start studying physio? That's a good question, Doug. So the interesting thing is that, um, okay, so when I was in year 10, I did work experience in a legal office and it was the most boring thing I ever did in my entire life. So that didn't mean that I wanted to then do physiotherapy. Um, but when I was in year 11, I worked in a spinal cord injury, um, you know, I did work experience spinal cord injury at North Shore, and that was quite interesting. But I'd have to say I also come from a medical background. So my father was a doctor and my mother uh, was a physio. So I actually had that in my background anyway. But when I went, so physio really appealed to me and one of the reasons it appealed to me, and this sounds really quite pathetic right now to say it to you, but it was actually a short course, so it wasn't that long because medicine was double the length. So when I did physio, it was three years, but we had to go back um, early in January so to start clinical. So we didn't have the typical, you know, three months off that you had at Christmas time at university. We we went early and, and started clinical. So in our first year we had normal university holidays and then after that we didn't. Um, so I finished in three years. And why did I want to finish in three years? Because I wanted to go overseas and travel and I thought this was a good thing to do to, you know, do a medically related thing. Now, I have to say to you that my father said that physios were half-baked doctors, so that's not a really good thing to say, is it, because there he was, his wife was a physio and, you know, all of that. Um, and Very I think, supportive of his wife. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But anyway, having said that, I think um, I have achieved much more and I have been much luckier in my job as a physio than I think I ever could have been as a doctor because I think the thing is as a physio how you can get an immediate change with someone particularly and this is probably why I do musculoskeletal because I'm in, into immediate gratification or something um, because you can do something and you get an immediate change and it's the most amazing thing because that patient comes in in agony and you can do something and they're just absolutely overwhelmed and so grateful and it's how well you've assessed them, listened to them, and then done something with your hands, then given them something that's appropriate to do. And it really does, it's it's amazing. So you're doing something that um, is quite skillful and it's, I suppose part of it is the art. It's, it's how you interpret what's going on, how, what the feel of the tissue is like, what they're saying to you, and that I don't think any other profession um, has that sort of ability that's, except, you know, I suppose other hands-on professions, but I, I think we're very lucky in what we do. And, and for me, and I've been extraordinarily lucky in my career as a physio, I think I, I wouldn't have done that if I'd done anything else. I think uh, it's just a fabulous thing to be involved with. And be part of people's lives. It's it's amazing. 
So I can say that because I'm a dinosaur enthusiast, you see. I've been here forever and, and I still love it. Every single day I love going to work and I think the most important thing is to enjoy what you're doing and I just love what I do. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And I think that speaks to, you know, we're going, you and I when we started, it was, a, it was very much a hands-on and we've spoken about this just off air as well, but that's the bio component of what we now sort of know as a biopsychosocial model and having those skills to assess, interpret, and then treat, I think, yeah, our profession is quite unique. There are other professions that probably have the hands-on skills of um, feeling and palpation, but we've also got that background of pathology and biomechanics and the anatomy of the tissue. And we can say, okay, well, given what we're feeling and knowing the background of the tissue's history and its load history and its structural history, we can try and do this and this and that as an intervention. And that very much comes from that biological and biomedical type model. So we'll come back to that, no doubt, further down the track. But yeah. once, okay, so you, you've obviously had a passion and you've still got that daily passion to help patients. But how did your first yeah. five years develop once you graduated as a physio? Okay, so the interesting thing is, so to give you an understanding of what happened as far as my feeling about why we have to be careful about exacerbating pain and where to push patients. The day before my final physio exams, I had a car accident, ended up uh, with a fractured femur. So I ended up in traction. I managed to do my exam, my written exams. They wouldn't let me do my prax, funnily enough, <laughs> in traction. So I actually, because I wanted to get to the hospital of my choice and I knew if I got a deferred, I wouldn't, you know, probably wouldn't get allocated to that hospital. So I did my exams and then after they were finished, I had a um, canal put in my femur and I then had physio afterwards, you know, and here I am just finished physio and, of course, I had physio. Now, it's some interesting things happen to you. First of all, the one thing I remember is lying, when before I had my surgery, lying in the um, hospital bed, looking around at all the older ladies with their fractured neck of femurs and thinking, what if there's a fire? Hmm, I'm going to have to cut down this traction and scoot myself out the door and somewhere. So it's interesting the things that go through in mind because I don't think I'd ever really thought that there would be a fire, but, you know, you do think about that. But the day the physio tried to get me up out of bed, I, you know, and it, it goes to show how you know, a little knowledge is dangerous and how wussy you are to begin with. I'm going, oh, no, I can't possibly. I've coughed up some blood. I've got a fat embolus. So, it, and I didn't, and I hadn't coughed up blood. But, you know, it's it's that sort of feeling of, oh, I don't know whether I should be getting up yet. And But when they were trying to get flexion back in my knee because um, I had a mid-shaft fracture, it's interesting because the first layer of, pain, you're actually a bit of a wuss and you can be pushed through it. The second layer of pain, yeah, maybe you shouldn't push them through that. And the third layer of pain, the patient's going to punch you out. So if they're going on, so it's really interesting where your tolerance level for the pain is. So it's um, fascinating. And and um, I started work eight weeks post-fracture. So I did my prax when I was still non-weight bearing on crutches. So I had to do, I don't know whether people remember PNF, but I had to do, so I'd learned contractions on the leg and all of the, you know, that sort of thing. I was doing it on the wrist. So timing for emphasis on the wrist was really interesting. Um, they don't teach PNF anymore in New South Wales, so, you know. Um, but I, it was quite interesting to 
do that and I'm thinking, oh, I'm never going to pass this because it's so... And then doing my uh, mobilisations, I had to do lumbar mobilisations standing on one leg. So I'm standing on one leg, sort of doing lumbar grade one. So it, it's quite interesting what you can do. But when I started work eight weeks post-fracture, I was still on a walking stick. And um, so I couldn't do any of the night work because I couldn't be sterile because I couldn't, you know, wash my hands and then go back to the patient to do any suction. So, And I started off doing um, the back clinic where, and in those days, it was, it was really bad. So they were all in a pool. This is at Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney. And they were all doing these exercises in the pool. And here am I with a fractured femur only being, you know, not fully weight-bearing, and I'm supervising these people. So if anybody had started to drown or anything, there's no way I could have rushed in and saved them. And um, and the other thing I was doing was antenatal classes. Well, as a 20-year-old, I was like, you know, has anybody had a baby? And then I'd tell them all about it. So it is interesting you start, but it does give you a huge insight into, A, what it's like to have pain and, B, what it's like to be, and I was only temporarily a little tiny bit disabled walking with my walking stick. And for a while there I became known as the girl with the walking stick, even though I only had it for a few weeks. And then after that, obviously, I, you know, started and did night work and things. Um, And my very first night of doing night work, because they were supervising the new grads, you know, with the seniors, and because I started four weeks later doing night work, um, my first sort of night day, night experience was the John Spence Nursery where I had to treat a baby who was 20 weeks old who weighed 250 grams and that was like very scary and, I'm, you know, all I kept saying was please don't die while I'm doing this finger percussion and suction. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's so after that um, my two years of amazing Uh, well, my one year of doing all the night work and all that sort of stuff at Prince Alfred, and then at the end of that year, I then became in charge because somebody had left of the amputee unit, and it was incredible because it gave me a huge insight into gait and, you know, amputee gait and walking, and that, that really sort of fired my passion for looking at gait and what's going on with um, gait abnormalities and working with a team and so that was really nice and I think working in a hospital gives you a huge um I suppose exposure to all sorts of things so when you're working in private practice as your first contact practitioner you get people coming in with all sorts of problems and it's really nice that you can draw on that experience that you had in the hospital, um, you know, changing tracky tubes. I mean, all sorts of things that you saw and particularly at a big a trauma teaching hospital like I was at, I was very privileged. So it that set me up, but I really, really, really wanted to do my Manips course and that was sort of something that I had a passion for because I felt that I really wanted to understand more about mobilisation and feel and all of that sort of thing and get into musculoskeletal. And so after I finished at PA, I then applied for a job at Cumberland College. So I was probably a couple of years older than the students. So I didn't think I really knew a great deal, but I was employed. Fortunately, I knew slightly more than they did. I had to teach some PNF, so obviously that that wasn't terrific because obviously I didn't think I was that good at it, but obviously it was better than they were because I'd 
done it a little bit. But um, and then I got into the MNIPS course and I did it actually two years part time. So I was still working uh, full time and doing my course part time. So and it was fantastic. It, it was a great thing to do. And I had some really good mentors, one of them, Paul Kelly, who the most extraordinary feel. Paul was absolutely the master of doing manipulation and, and um, you know, feeling a joint and, and that sort of thing, and it was amazing to watch him. And he would also bring patients in for us to see him treat them. And it, it was at that point that I realised that it's really important for students to see someone who's an experienced clinician treat a patient. And even if the patient got a bit worse, it was a good teaching Thing. So Paul would say, well, at least we know we're on the right track because we've made a difference, even if it's we've done too much. So it was actually really quite good to see him and the way he clinic, did clinical reasoning, even though at that point it wasn't called clinical reasoning, but it was clinical reasoning. So it was really quite nice and that sort of background in um, assessing and reassessing and that's really one of the amazing things, I think, that Jeff Maitland gave to all of us physios here in Australia, the importance of finding um, your asterisk sign and assessing and reassessing and the importance of the subjective examination. Because when I went overseas, uh, I was surprised that they didn't actually reproduce symptoms and they didn't have an asterisk sign. And I thought, wow, because they were just treating on a biomechanical model or concave convex rule or something, but they didn't actually reproduce the pain. And I found that because it was so inherent in my training, I mm. found that quite interesting. Yeah. So when did you, just, just some dates and when did you graduate from physio and then when did you go actually into MNIPS? So I finished my physio in um, 1978 and I then did a sort of conversion course because we finished with a diploma. And then um, I started my MNIPS in uh, 1982, 83. Okay. And you did that in Sydney? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, 82, 83 I did it. Yeah, finished in 83. I did that in Sydney. So, and it was a... Um, 12 months once so if you did it part time yeah so 82 83 um, and it was and I did a really my what I wanted to look at for my project um, was what caused um, knee pain in adolescence because my um, 13 year old sister who was really good at hurdles had had to stop and she was a state-level hurdler. She had to stop all her athletics because she had patellofemoral pain. It was called chondromalacia back then. And fortunately, my parents were smart enough to not allow her to have her patella operate on. And in those days, they were probably taking them out. Um, so she was put in a plaster of Paris cast and she had to stop all her sport. So I was quite interested to look at, you know, why adolescents got um, chondromalacia patelli. And so that's what I investigated in my um, MNIPS course. And um, then I sort of came up and I actually had a prediction equation that I presented at a conference in Perth um, and 
people said to me, oh, well, you know, that's all well and good to predict who's going to get it, but what about the treatment? So that's when I started looking at treatment. So it, it, was, quite, it was quite interesting, actually, the whole process, um, investigating why and, and then measuring a whole bunch of variables. It happened early on in my career. I was sort of lucky. Yeah, and you, I'm just wondering then, given that sort of influence and I guess a bit of a personal motivation to find out a bit more about chondromalacial patellofemoral pain, how soon after your MNIPS did you then move into your Masters? Because that's in an unusual area for physios, isn't it? Yeah, so I started my Masters in 1985, so, uh, and I did that part-time. Yeah, so... So that, yeah, so this was happening in my late 20s and, um, yeah, and it took me a while to finish that only because I had two children along the way, so it sort of delayed finishing it. Um, But the reason I looked at that was because I was quite interested in the biomechanics and there was no biomechanics course in Sydney at the time. And so I, I was basically doing a master's in biomedical engineering and, um, mind you, it nearly killed me. I mean, I had to do three years of engineering maths in a semester. Oh, so I came home to my husband, uh, who's an engineer, and I said, you're going to have to help me with this. And he said, oh, no, too long ago. I said, okay, I'm going to have to get a tutor. And he said, okay, I'll help you. But we were going through stuff like super fast and I thought I would never pass. I had to do 10 hours extra a week of maths just to keep up with what we were doing. And, um, yeah, it was quite, I mean, I ended up with a credit, which actually really stunned me because it was just, it it was hard. And see, all the people in my class were all, all had medical background. So the medical people had to do the engineering subjects and the engineering students had to do the medical subjects. So, um, you know, I'm, I did analogue electronics and circuit design, you know, there was a whole bunch of really quite interesting things that you'd think, well, what does a physio need with that? And you could say true. But my um, master's project was actually a, a mathematical model to look what tape does. So I'd actually started taping the knee before I did my um, master's. I sort of experimented with it a bit. Um, so, so could you have come about with your landmark McConnell program without that biomedical engineering background or did you actually find you needed it to sort of give it some sort of um, credence or some sort of analytical um, rigour? So so the, the, reason, the reason I start, so I'll, I'll go back a stage and just, so I presented my um, findings from my post-grad diploma in Manips at a conference in Perth and, you know, people went, oh, yeah, who cares about why people get it? You know, it's all about we treatment's hopeless, you know, what are we going to do for treatment? So when I graduated, we were doing, because it was called chondromalacia, and chondromalacia is like crab meat, okay, on the back of the patella, and what you had to do was grind the crab meat off, right? So I think I did that to two patients and flared them up so badly that they couldn't walk for a whole month. So... Then, and this is, you know, back in the day of, you know, doing grade one minus minus with the bending the knees of the mosquitoes for um, Maitland uh, approach. So we were doing grade one of a grind on the patella, which was a patella tap. So you stood there and tapped the patella for 30 seconds. That was the end of your treatment, end of story. You gave them nothing else. So you didn't give them any exercises. You just went tap, 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 see you later. Well, that didn't really work either. So 
And that's why I was looking at, you know, what caused it. So I was interested in the cause. So when I, I'd stopped teaching at Cumberland, this is in um, 85, and I acquired a clinic from someone who on campus and she'd left um, a few months before and I moved into this practice and it had been empty, nobody had been it. And I, what I was doing to begin with, because everything was causing the patella to track laterally, and so I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what happens if I hold the patella. So I was holding the patella as people were walking up and down the stairs and I then sort of formulated a critical test where people had to do an isometric quads contraction through range. And I held the patella and their pain disappeared. And so, oh, this is interesting, I thought. So I'm still holding the patella. And I thought, I need something that's a bit more permanent than that. So I had a look in the cupboard and what did I find but old tape. And the only reason it worked was it was old because it was more adhesive because it was the white tape that doesn't stick terribly well. And I put it on and it worked. So it's called serendipitous really. And so, and I hadn't done a lot of taping courses because there are a lot of rules in taping courses. You know, you can't do this, you can't turn corners, you can't, ah, 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 you, can only, you can't overlap. And because I didn't know the rules, I didn't know what you can't do. So I was a bit more experimental. So it was quite interesting. So I could rotate it and do all sorts of things that people would never do with tape. Because when I went to the US, because they're big on taping over there, you know, they'd say, oh, no, you can't do that. And I said, why not? I've been doing it. And so it was quite interesting, the the difference of, you know, what you can and can't do with tape. And if you don't know the rules, then you don't know you're breaking the rules. So it's okay. Um, and that's sort oh, of how it isn't works. Isn't that so, so classic, though, for so many paradigms that we work with? I mean, Brian Mulligan says the same thing about his a serendipitous moment, just holding a person's joint and moving it, and then their pain's gone away. And you, you can't argue with that as far as, hang on, there's, there's a moment here, there's a point of inflection that I can learn from this if I'm open to being, you know, you know, absorbing of a new concept, really, isn't it? That's what you've just done. Yeah, and it is quite interesting because um, having graduated in the era of um, non, you know, non-randomised placebo-controlled double-blind clinical trials, it's a good thing really because I didn't know what a control group was. So my first paper, the the in the Journal of Physiotherapy, published in 1986. Um, I didn't have a control group. So it used to be held up at Sydney University as an example of a bad paper. I mean, I didn't even know what one was. I was presenting clinical data and just sort of putting it out there. So I think it was meant that I was less constrained. I think these days people are much more constrained. I mean, I, I, I would say to anybody out there, don't be afraid to try something because it's when you try something that's a bit different and you go and and be able to question and go, what can I do for this patient? Never give up on them. Just sort of say, okay, is there something else I can try? And then you do that and you're right, the serendipitous moment happens. And I'll tell you about my meeting with Brian Mulligan in a minute because it was quite interesting. Um, but it, it is quite fascinating what you can do to change things. And and so when I first started, I thought, oh, yeah, it's pretty easy, you know, two bits of tape and, you know, psh, off they go. And then I got a whole bunch of people probably a couple of years later, you know, oh, I've had tape before, it didn't work. Then I realised that people were taping too low and it was aggravating the fat pad. And so that's what got me very involved in where 
some of the nociceptive fibres are in the knee and what it's all about and making sure that you don't aggravate the fat pad because it's full of nociceptive fibres and so you have to tape higher. So, and then, you know, so then you have more of the nuances, you see, because when you first start, you go, oh, yeah, okay, psh, got this. But no, it's much more. And, and as soon as you think you've got it all, that's the day you should give up. So, you know, you, you sort of still have to keep. So you're right. So then getting back to the biomedical engineering, I felt that I needed to to sort of validate that it did do something, you know, that, that yes, if you put tape on somebody's patella, it is actually doing something, which I actually found that it does do. It enhances the lever arm of the quad. So that was quite exciting. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, an obvious question, are you thinking you're doing, about doing a PhD? Is there a is there some sort of a big yeah, project I mean, in the, I, in the I pipeline? Could, I would have liked to have, and, you know, lucky my husband's not around. When I finished my <laughs> master's, um, people would say to me, you know, our friends go, oh, when's Jen doing her PhD? And he'd go, not in this marriage, she's not. It, I think yes, it, it's, yes. it's the juggle and, and, you know, all of those that are out there that thinking hashtag me too and all of that, it's tricky. You know, you've you've got to work a family. I had two kids. I was trying to work. He was working. Mm. He had a stressful job. You know, um, it's yeah. sort of one of those. It's got a time, I mean, it, doesn't it? Yeah, and it, it's sort of – and I possibly could now because, you know – but the problem is I think your motivation goes. I think, you know, I've written lots of papers and you think, oh, do I really want to go and do that? Where where what I could do is put the papers together and maybe do a, you know, a, like a uh, a thesis on all the published papers or something. You could do something like that and get a yeah, doctorate yeah. of some sort that way. You can get an MD mm. that way. I mean, if they like what you've done. <laughs> we'll come back to the McConnell program. I mean, and I didn't, I does didn't it, is it, it weird to be famous? So I, didn't point it. I know, I know you didn't. That's what I'm saying. Like, has, has the McConnell program as a concept affected you personally or professionally in the way you view the professional, the professions viewed you? Yeah. So I'll tell you how it sort of started, how it was called the McConnell program. And then I'll get back to that question. And if I don't get back to it, ask me again. Because But um, when I, so this took off really quickly. So I went to the MNIPS course um, at the MNIPS conference and it was in 85 and so I just sort of, you know, started treating people and presented the thing that was finally published in 86 in the Journal of Physiotherapy. And I thought I was going to be held out of the room because I was going to a MNIPS conference and I was not talking about spine, I was talking about the knee and I wasn't talking about uh, I was talking about exercises as well as just mobilising and I thought, oh, nobody's. But it was really, really well received and I was quite overwhelmed by that. Um, and then I was asked to, to run a course in Perth, which was the first course that I ever did, and I thought, oh, yeah, I can do this. And then I just thought, shit, why did I say I'd do that? Oh, my goodness, it's just really, you know, so I had to put this course together. And I thought what I've got to have in this course is anatomy and I've got to really, you know, have um, talk about the, the way the patella sits. So it was absolutely fantastic. Lance Toomey did a fresh dissection on this course. It was mind-blowing. So there it was. He was just dissecting out the retinaculum and it was amazing. So I did this two-day course and then, of course, I thought, oh, I better have a patient. So the patient came in the, in the 
afternoon of the first day and came back the second day. I thought, oh, my goodness, why am I having a patient? And then I thought, well, the, the participants need to treat patients. I mean, it was, when I think about it now, I had 40 sub. 40 people in the room and I was doing it all myself. I mean, it's crazy, but it worked really well. And, and as I say, Lance's dissection was amazing. And then I did my second course down in Melbourne and Chris Briggs did the same thing, did a fresh dissection. And to organise that, you know, it was sensational, but it didn't quite work out that way in other states. So, you know, it's sort of, um, but the it was just incredible seeing this fresh dissection. It was unbelievable these these men were masters of you know doing it it's fabulous so yes in 1986 the world conference congress of uh, physiotherapy was that on then no 1986 the world congress was 88 1986 there was an international sports medicine conference on up in brisbane i submitted my paper to go up there to present and I was expecting my first baby, and the conference was on in September. He was supposed to be born in August, but was late. And when the conference was on was exactly when my baby was born. So I got um, a sports physician to present my paper. Um, his name is Ken Crichton, fabulous guy. He sadly passed away a few years ago. Um, and he gave my paper, and he coined it the McConnell Program. So he was the one that actually called the McConnell program. I, w- I would never have done that because you just think, oh, that sounds a bit like I'm being full of myself or something. Uh, yeah. And for a while there, because I was younger, I mean, first of all, you're a bit, you know, you're sort of a bit brasher, I suppose, when you're younger. But also, you're you're also very aware of criticism. It, it's quite interesting. It's sort of, you hit your 30s and you get a bit more robust about it. But it, you are a bit more aware of criticism. So it's really important for we who are older in the profession to encourage people who are younger and have new ideas because it it is easy to to push them aside if you don't believe in what they're saying. So um so it's been a it's been an interest because you don't want to so there's a little bit of a you know, you don't want to be the tall poppy, I suppose, and that's sort of a little bit Australian way of keeping everybody down, you know. And to begin with, you sort of yeah. feel that you're out on a limb and everybody wants to, you know, cut you off and, you know, you go, oh, well, that's sort of life. So so you don't want to be saying, oh, look, I've got this wonderful, you know, program or I'm selling this because you don't want to be an infomercial, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the time, I guess around the world, there were quite a few, the Stanley Paris Institute, and there was, I remember I was in Canada, there were always people coming past the Upledger Institute. It was, it was almost a thing to do was to create your own institute um, around which you had a philosophy that people bought into or didn't buy into, and often there wasn't much research behind it. So how did you feel the profession then viewed you? Um so I think so. It, what I was doing took off in the US, okay, which is sort of, um, and it, the girl over there, she you know took off and started running with it, and she wanted to call it the McConnell Institute, and I'm like, well, there's only me, and you know, people teaching it over there. So it is interesting that they're more into institutes than we are. It's a there's a little bit of a saying you're never a prophet in your own land and that's quite true. You don't want to I think you don't you want to stay a little bit not 
you know, you want to be under the radar. You don't want to be, look at me, look at me. And I don't, it's, and you want to make sure that what you're doing is evidence-based, that, you, you know, you're not making claims that you can't back up, you're not. So I was very aware that I wanted to be, in, you know, involved in research and make sure that it was backed up and it wasn't so, yeah. And, and, and people, you know, take off with things. And, you know, all of a sudden that's next, next best new thing. And you don't want to be that either. You want it to be part of, and it shouldn't, it should be, part of an evaluation so it, it should be so so you know I use biomechanical principles my Maitland training you know so it's a whole bunch of things and and getting back to meeting uh, Brian Mulligan I was at a conference in 1986 in New Zealand and I was that was the first international conference I'd been asked to and um, I was seven months pregnant um, and uh it was, I mean, fantastic. They asked me to speak at the NIPS conference. And Brian was showing me these interesting techniques, nags and snags and, you know, all sorts of things. So, and then I was showing him taping. And I think after that he started taping his positional fault changes and I started adapting some of his. So it was quite a nice, interesting um transfer of ideas if you like so it was sort of you know you you sort of meld stuff and you take stuff and and see I quite like Brian Edwards's combined movements that I'd learned in my Manips course so I quite like and I call them active passives mm. or you know combined movements and and I quite like that so I don't think it's funny because I don't think you can claim anything is entirely original because it, you you get you know you you've got an idea but it's based on something else that you've seen and that grows and and that's how you hope the profession's going to grow that we understand more things and and you can see that it matures and develops and and you know you go to other issues. Yeah, I, I've got to step in there and say, like, I completely agree with what you're saying, but I think you, in this situation, are underselling yourself. Like, when you think about what chondromalacia was as a diagnosis and as a method of treatment, what you, whether you want to say you stumbled upon it or you, but you intuitively went after something and you followed a, 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 a maybe it was just a clinical nuance at the time but when you think about how we manage patellofemoral pain now as opposed to then i think you know you really need to take a bit more a bit more credit for leading that you know basically you know is that we we manage it terribly we didn't even manage it i mean and you dropped a positive bombshell literally on the you know the method of management of that clinical conundrum so i think sometimes yes we do grow on the shoulders of other people and probably you had some understanding that you got from somewhere else but that was such a turning point for us as a profession and how people and patients were managed that i think you've got to take a bit more credit than just say it was uh, um, building on the knowledge of somebody else well I, that's thank you, Doug. That's really nice. I mean, it, it's it's. I think it has really changed um, management. You're right, worldwide. Because, and I was again lucky to speak at a conference, um, at an orthopedic surgery conference, and this is how I got to the US so early, because it was an in in Sydney, and I was asked to speak on a panel with you know a whole bunch of orthopedic surgeons, and. It, and it's, it's really interesting because I was the only female in the room. So, you know, when we talk about it, and 
it's interesting what goes through your mind because, again, I'd only just had a baby and I kept thinking I'm glad I'm not pregnant because, you know, because they just look at you as though, you know, what will she know? But it, I think because it was so badly treated also medically and orthopedic mm. surgery-wise, I think they were quite pleased to have some other way of treating it. And the first person that invited me to the US was an orthopedic surgeon who um, wanted me to speak to his, you know, physios to change the way they were treating it. And that's sort of how it got started. And it was quite, um, and I think there are a whole bunch of people that have not had their knees operated on because physiotherapy has got much better at understanding and managing it and realising it's a a biomechanical issue that, you know, we need to look at feet and we need to look at the hip and we need to look at the whole lot and understand where the pain's coming from um, and manage it. And it's interesting when we go back to this biopsychosocial model, when I was um, a new grad, you know, if if the patella tapping didn't work, what the sort of rationale of the orthopedic surgeon was, apart from taking the patella out or doing all sorts of other terrible things, was it actually was a female problem and it was because they were a little bit, you know, psychologically challenged or Hysterical. something. Hysterical. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, it's sort of yeah. I'd hate to think that we've gone back full circle and we're now back at that same because our understanding of that is much better. And sure, anybody that has chronic pain and had it for a while, it gets you down. And and this is where we as a profession, as soon as you put your hands on, any people's problems just come gushing out because that license to touch is amazing. And if we lose that, yeah. we're in big trouble. And it's that nice feeling of, I, you know, I can tell someone what's going on in my life. I can tell someone how depressed I feel about this, how anxious I am about it, why I can't go up and down those stairs, why I have this great fear. And it's, you know, we've measured the effect of fear of pain and how it does turn muscle off and it does have a biological effect. So it is absolutely fascinating looking at the whole gamut. And I think because we are there and we spend time with patients, we get that side of it. But we do have to remember the biology. And you're right, connecting it all up and saying, yes, we as physios can treat this and we can do a really good job understanding how to make sure we're not pushing that person through pain, understanding how all the bits interact, then we have done a good job in making sure that those people don't have their patellas out, don't have lateral releases unnecessarily, don't have their tibial cubicles realigned, et cetera. And most of those surgeries are not done anymore. I don't think people at least they see them. And that's the reason is that we have a, a, a method of management which is non-invasive. It has next to no side effects and in a large part it is quite efficacious in how the patient feels after it. And just having talked to – we were doing a course with Jeremy Lewis last weekend and this weekend coming up and it's interesting the parallels that Jeremy talks about in regards to the shoulder research and looking at what can physio offer those patients and really sort of, you know, the, the, the research is quite clear now that as a physiotherapist providing exercise-based prescription with some probably minor pain management type processes, we are just as effective as any form of surgery, any injection, um, anything like that. And there's very minimal cost, there's very minimal side effects, and the patient overall is much better off. And 
I think there's a whole swing towards that process now of, you know, clinical reasoned evidence-based exercise prescription with some pain modification behaviors. And that's happening in the knee. It happened in the back, now the shoulder. And I think when you look around the, the whole human body that if someone has a problem and they haven't spent three or so months under a structured exercise program with intervention, then they probably haven't had a good you know, basic treatment before they move into the surgical or other yeah. models. And and the difficulty, I think, is that a lot of patients um, expect a quick fix and that's the issue. And so where Great. you look at why does physiotherapy not work and having been on the Medicare review panel uh, for Allied Health to, you know, our numbers of, you know, and it was quite interesting because I was actually charged with finding evidence that, allied health works and how many treatments you need for allied health to work. And even though there's evidence to show, yes, exercise programs work, it's not, it doesn't tell you how many and it's mixed. So, you know, uh, uh, Jeremy would be also one to say that the evidence is mixed and partly because what we're not measuring is patient compliance. So some of the reason why surgery works, if you like, is because they're they have to go to a rehab place afterwards. They're in absolute agony because if somebody's cut them open somewhere and they are forced to do something for a period of time because as in not forced, but, you know, they have nothing else to do because now they've got this huge scar and they've got to, you know, get their leg or their arm or their back or there's something moving. And they're all of a sudden doing Exercises, and it may not be the surgery that's worked. It may be the fact that they're now much more compliant, and the, mm. it's quite interesting looking at compliance. And this, this to me, this is where I'm very interested in trying to um, help people stay compliant. Which is why I get patients to come back again. You know, once they're discharged, I check them every six or twelve months to see how they're going, because I think we have to be uh, involved, like the dentist is, in making sure that people don't have tooth decay, we have to be involved in their musculoskeletal wellness, if you like, so that they actually improve and um, stay going well. Because as soon as you get better, then um, you you stop doing your exercises. And I, I tell people, no, I'm not giving you exercises. I'm giving you body management strategies, BMS. And this is for life. And as soon as you stop cleaning your teeth, that's when you can stop doing it because it, it's it's really a lifetime of managing yourself. And this is this is what we have to do. We're you know we're life coaches, but understand how the patient can manage their pain. So if their pain comes back, we've got to show them strategies that they can do themselves. And this is this is where I think you know. If, if we were talking about telehealth earlier, Doug and I, and, and I, I mean, you can't do it as an initial consultation, but later on down the track, if they've seen you before and they need just a refresher, you could do it. But as an initial consultation, there's no way you can do telehealth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that the the dental analogy is great because that's ideally where we want to go as a profession is to have people realize that these exercises that they've been shown are specific to them for their problem and that'll help them if they do it. But if they don't do it, well, it's like anything else, you know, you can't just continue to live on your last 
effort or exercise, you've got to keep moving forward. And unfortunately, our body isn't in a state of decay, so you definitely have to do it even more so as you sort of get older. Yes. Well, I tell them it's, you know, it's it's management. This is not cured, it's managed. That's a good idea, body management strategies. (laughs) And and it's interesting because you're quite right. It is specific to each patient. It's interesting because a lot of the things I give them, I tell them I only give this to smart people because this is hard. I'm getting a different sequence of muscles working so that, you know, and I'm giving you the bread and butter. The rest that you do, you know, whether you go to the gym or whether you do Pilates or whatever you do, that's the cream. I'm giving you the bread and butter. So and there you, go. you just, it's it's sort of trying to make sure that somebody can do it anywhere, anytime, any place, and not take too long because then they must do it. Yeah. So compliance is good. Yeah, the simplicity of it. Now, you've also completed your specialisation. Is that yes? Yes, I have, and that was great. Um, I think... A challenging process by all accounts? Um, it, well, I was... Okay, let, let's go back a step. So specialisation was happening, and I think all the time the exams were on because I got mine in 2009 and all the times that the exams were on before that, I think I was away or, you know, so teaching or something overseas. Anyway, it was about to finish the grandfather clause in and I can't remember how they grandfathered people in. Anyway, it was it was sort of if you'd had a certain amount of experience, done a postgraduate diploma, you had a master's degree, done some research, then you had to go through your specialisation exams. So, there, again, there was a conference and I said to Gwen, oh, I think I better do it. She said, well, you better hurry. You know, the last one's coming up and uh, this is October and the next exams were in November. So I had a month of um, getting ready. And you're right, it was a pretty intense month because I thought, because and she said, oh, I think I can probably get you in. She said, but, you know, mm, you should have put your hand down earlier and, and you're going to have to do this. And um, So, and in, in a funny sort of way, that was quite good because you can't get too, too sort of stressed about it because you've just got to get focused. Um, it was an, it was a very good thing to do because I think, um, and people have to realise that if you're going through specialisation, for those, those of you that haven't done it, it the examiner's not out there to fail you. Absolutely not. And you shouldn't be second-guessing how they they would treat a patient. You go in and you treat the patient how you would treat the patient. And if you've got sound clinical reasoning and you've done a thorough examination, you've listened to the patient, all of that, then you will pass. No, No two ways about it because, you know, unless you're doing something extraordinarily dangerous, your clinical reasoning and your re- sort of way you interact with the patient and the way you've listened and, the, and your reasons for doing something are actually, you know, quite valid. So they're not expecting you to treat that patient the way they would necessarily. They're wanting to know how you would do it. And obviously they're looking to see whether the patient changes or not. So mm. um, I feel it's really important for the profession to have a large number of people who've gone through the rigour of the college examination process. And, you know, I have treated patients in front of casts of thousands at conferences um, all, all over the place. And I can tell you, you still get nervous doing, you know, a specialisation exam because it's just you think, shit, they're examining me and what if I don't make it up to scratch and all of that. It is 
just one of those things. If you don't get nervous, there's obviously something wrong with you or something. I mean, you, it's, it's really quite interesting how you think, well, I've, you know, this is only two people watching me here and I've had lots of other people watching before. Um, and it's realising that they don't really want you to fail. It's not that, you know, that's part of the process. The process is making sure we have people of a certain calibre getting through to lead the profession in forward through the 21st century so that we have, we can say we're at this level and we should be recognised as specialists and therefore we should have a two-tier system where a new graduate shouldn't get paid the same amount of money for a physio in private practice as someone who's a specialist. And I really think that we need to push to get, you know, health funds saying, okay, this person is a specialist, they should get more money back than this person who has only been out for five minutes from physio school. Because you've got a wealth of experience and a wealth of knowledge and you you cannot ever underestimate how amazing it is to have that wealth of knowledge. Every patient you see adds to that body of knowledge and, mm. and your you know, feeling of I never want to give up on this patient. Why are they different to the last patient? Why is this different? And, and you recognising what is not a musculoskeletal condition. I mean, I've picked up three pulmonary emboli in my clinic. You know, it, it's interesting that it, you know what is not musculoskeletal, what you can and can't treat, how you can affect it, what you can do. And that's the value of being a specialist, having that vast clinical experience under your belt. It's fantastic. Yeah. Looking across the range of articles and commentaries and book chapters and all the things that you've written and I've seen you present too, it seems you're pretty hands-on type physio. Would you say that perception is true? Absolutely true, yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about, I guess, there's a bit of a, a, a tidal movement at the moment that is flying towards the hands-off concept? Sort of what do you feel about that? Mm. Um, you should never forget the bio. So my feeling is people don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I think I'll have a bit of psychosocial pain today. Something has happened to trigger it, and our job as a physio is to work out what has happened in their system to trigger their pain. Now, there's a whole bunch of things that you can get a much better rapport with a patient um, once you start putting your hands on, feeling the tissue. Uh, you break down a whole bunch of barriers. Obviously, you ask their permission, of course, and, you know, we do all that informed consent thing. But it is really important. Now, part of what we do is placebo. Putting your hands on is placebo. Who cares? You know, that is really important. It gives that release of endorphins into the system, the body's endorphins, is amazing. Now, you hope that what you're doing is a bit better than placebo, and I've done enough clinical trials to show that um, certainly some of the knee treatments and things are better than placebo, and so we, we've looked at it versus placebo. But if you don't have that option to feel tissue, examine uh, look at things, then you really are cutting off a, a huge chunk of your treatment. And if we don't do it as a physio, and we have a lot of pathology and because of our background when we were training in neuro, in cardiopulmonary, we've, we also know what isn't musculoskeletal, we know what the red flags are. So we have a much better background than a lot of other hands-on type people, but if we're not doing it, 
somebody else will fill in, step in and do it. And we should never give it up because it's it's been mm. hard fought and we don't want to u- lose our first contact practice. We don't want to lose out and, you know, be not doing that and giving the specific sort of exercises because there are also other people that do exercises as well and, you know, some maybe some of them do it better than us. And so I think it's... We do need to keep that hands-on going. The tissue feel and, and examining is just so important. Mm. No, it's an art. It's an art. And, and, and it's hard to train. It's hard to, to teach. It's, it's sort of something that, that – um, and it's hard to measure. So, yes, we know need the science, but we also need to never forget there's an art to it. Going more broadly, can you recount or elaborate on three uh, moments in your professional life that particularly stand out for you? The Probably the first one would have been, um, so when I was an undergrad, I'm thinking sort of, you know, influences in my life. As an undergraduate, Roberta Shepherd, who was a neurology lecturer, uh, and she... Um, is amazing because she, she was talking about motor control and that's what got me very involved in motor control. Even though I don't do neurology, um, I was very interested in the motor control and the, the finer control aspects in the musculoskeletal system. So she was quite inspirational as an undergrad. Um, as a postgrad, Paul Kelly, his, his feel was amazing. He had beautiful hands. He probably still does have beautiful hands. He's retired, um, but it was he was fantastic. Um, and I think there've been a couple of times when I've been asked to present as a keynote speaker, and and it, it just blows you away that that you've been asked internationally to present. I mean. Uh, I often pinch myself and think, wow, I've done something that other people want to hear about and it's extraordinary that I'm over in another part of the world and um, I'm sort of here as a keynote speaker. Mm. Uh, And uh, not only in a physio conference but I've also been a keynote speaker in um, the physiatry conference in the US. So it's, it's an incredible feeling to be asked to do that and for people to respect you to to sort of um, get that sort of experience and you, you sort of go this is amazing and and I'll and I know I've given more than three but there was one example when I was on a beach now this is quite and I was sitting on a beach in long long Island in um, the US and I just taught a course and I was just sort of reading a a book and these people came past and we were chatting and um, they said they were physio students and um, and I said oh and and this is quite early on in my career it was quite interesting in my teaching uh, in the US career and I I said um, oh you know you enjoying physiotherapy oh yes they said and I said I that I was teaching physiotherapy and, you know, I came from Australia. Oh, they said, oh, yes, there are those amazing people in uh, physiotherapy in Australia. There's, um, you know, uh, I think they they said Mackenzie, um, Maitland and McConnell. And I went, oh, my God, that's me. (laughs) 
So I was just so shocked. And I went, oh, I'm a con. They went, no, that, like this. And I went, yes. And, and it was that sort of extraordinary moment where you think, oh, my God, <laughs> I, you know, I've made it into some sort of, you know, status in, in physiotherapy. And, and I think having said all that, the, the culmination, I suppose, was actually being recognised by the Australian <laughs> government and receiving um, an Order of Australia, um, member of the Order of Australia. It, it was it, it's mind blowing that you're recognised uh, for your contribution. Uh, it, it was amazing, it, it, and it was an incredible ceremony. And mm. um, yeah, and that that happened to me in 2009. It was just incredible. So, um, yeah, yeah, it, it, and it was, yeah, you, I mean, you never think that's ever going to happen to you ever in your life. You never sort of think, oh, well, I think I'm going to do something that yeah, nobody else has done before and, and, you know, you end up with a, um, an AM. So, yeah, it was incredible. If you could step back to your younger self, are there sort of three bits of advice that you'd like to give yourself based upon the experience that you've had through your professional life so far? I would say to anybody... You have to enjoy what you do. Um, that's really important. And so my younger self probably did. And I'd probably say never never give up. So, you know, if, if you think that people aren't listening to you or they think you're crazy, which sort of did sort of happen, um, then it's okay, you know, even if they want to, because there have been numerous PhDs to prove or disprove whether the McConnell method works or doesn't work. So um, it's it, it's really important to, I suppose, develop a thick skin because those sometimes that can be a little bit tricky. Um, and I suppose my younger self would have liked to have done a PhD. But, you know, there are roads in life where, where you make choices and, you know, that's just one of the things that happens, I suppose. Um, and I never regret at any stage not having children because they they're fabulous and it's probably the most important job you ever do in your entire life. So bring up responsible adults and, and have them contributing to society. And as a parent, all you can say is what you've hopefully done is give kids self-esteem, that they feel good about themselves. And as a parent, you don't want to outsource that Absolutely. responsibility of parenting. So that's when you make choices. That's when you say, well, I can't go away here. I've got to be there. I've got to be here for my children. It's, it's important. So it, it's, it is a really important thing that you do is, is make decisions and, and those. So, yeah, I mean, my younger self has really enjoyed what I've done. I've been lucky. Um, I've had a fabulous professional life and I'm still having a fabulous professional life even in spite of COVID, um, it's, and I'm in lockdown Sydney and it's, you know, we're still making a difference to our patients every day and it's fantastic. So, um, and I'm, I've got a Zoom patient from the US. I didn't want to take on any Zoom patients uh, from overseas. I have had patients from overseas, but I've seen them before. He is a, a UCLA professor and I thought, oh, in neuro-oncology, okay, so I thought, oh, well, he's a doctor, he should know, you know. Anyway, it's been a very interesting journey. Um, I realised that he was falling off the, you know, I had one Zoom meeting with him and I then got about 20 emails after that one Zoom meet, probably not quite 20, but quite a few emails after the Zoom consultation 
in that next day. So I sent him an email saying, send me your phone number. I've got to ring you on my way to work because he was heading, he had CRPS. So I had to get him involved with the CRPS. Then he asked me how many milligrams of um, gabapentin you should be taking. I'm going, you're the neurologist. I mean, you know, this is not my area. I'm a physical therapist, you know. But it, it's been an interesting journey treating him via Zoom. I mean, it's just, like, tricky to treat someone via Zoom. So... The hands-on, you can never, you know, you need to examine, you need to see, you need to evaluate and you need to, but he's been appreciative that I've been there and I'm also very, you know, I go, no, you've got to do, you know, you've got to manage this CRPS, you've got to get on top of it because otherwise it will overwhelm you. I mean, he was at the stage he couldn't get out of bed. He was so depressed. So, and and I said to him, the silver lining from all this is this knee pain will get better. Your patients, you can't say that to them often. They will die. I yeah. said so, you know. Anyway, it's it's interesting. Yeah. Um, so for those of you that are at the beginning of your physiotherapy journey, it is an amazing journey. Every patient provides a very interesting challenge. And, you know, don't be yes. frightened to experiment with something. Do something a little bit different. Try it out because that's what happened to me and then it, it, that's how you experiment. And I know it's harder with double-blind randomised placebo-controlled clinical trials and, you know, all of that, but just just hang in there and do it because it's a very interesting profession and it's fabulous and it's extremely rewarding. Extreme. So most of my research has been clinical research. I have been working in clinical practice doing clinical research I did have a time when I went to Stanford to do some more intense research, which I did on the shoulder, um, and that was an interesting experience. But most of the time I'm doing clinical research, and at the moment I'm looking at why people fail total knee replacements, one, and the second one I'm looking at is golfer's hip. So I'm quite involved with a radiologist, and he he looks at the MRI and we're, you know, looking at things, so it's quite interesting. Never give up and stop. Looking looking forward as far as a profession goes, where would you like to see physio in sort of five or so years? Physio at the moment is actually uh, disturbing to me because I think it's going in the wrong direction. I think we are losing our hands-on skills and I think people are undervaluing how important hands-on skills are and how important examination is. Um, and differential diagnosis uh, you know, I treated one guy who'd had neck surgery for his torn rotator cuff. You know, it, it's we've got to really be very good at examining and really, you know, so it frightens me that we're heading down the hands-off path because you'll never get it back. If we lose that, we'll never get it back and we've got to really fight for to keep it because the people that are good at it, it once they go out of the profession and if we're not, teaching people to be better at it, then those skills will be lost, absolutely lost. And I am grateful for the people that taught me in my minutes course. And and it was it was rigorous, um, you know, it was very rigorous. That was a very harrowing time in my life, that MNIPS course. It was probably much more harrowing than the specialisation. I mean, my father died in the middle of it. My father was 55. Um, he died in the middle of my MNIPS course. It was, yeah, 
I was 26 at the time um, and That's I tough. had prac exams coming up and, you know, it was, it was yeah, it, it was stressful, really stressful. But in, in looking back on it, it was worth every minute because, uh, you know, it makes you the person you are, it um, helps you with your manual skills and the very, very pernickety way they were teaching probably meant that, you know, it, it gave me a good feeling about feel, you know. So, um, yeah. yeah. It, it's We can't lose it. We cannot. They haven't done a MNIPS course in Sydney for several years now. Uh, I, I think Perth is one of the few places that you can still do it, probably Adelaide as well. But, you know, um, Queensland, I think it's now a combined course with sports. Um, and not, and I think sports is very important, but I think you do need very specific hands-on manual therapy skills as well. Yeah, and that, that yeah, I mean, I don't want to jump in. I agree with all that, and I think it's something that it takes uh, time and guidance and therefore mentorship to develop. It's not something you just pick up from a book and you read about it. You actually have to feel it and see the differences between different people, say in your case, knees and, you know, what thickening mean, what thickness means, what's a blood swelling, what's a synovial swelling. So they're all little skills that you develop and it takes time and experience. Thank you, Jenny. We've had an amazing walk through your experience as a professional and it's certainly it's it's vast it's huge you've you've traversed a large landscape of our profession and you've created some amazing things for people to look towards that you alone have brought to us as a profession so i've said it to a few people and i definitely want to say it to you thank you so much for what you've done for our profession as a physiotherapist and as a creative physio i think that's the other thing is you've been willing to step outside the box take some flat create a new idea validate it and give it back to us as a profession and so many of our patients because of that have benefited from your courage to do that so thanks so much for being on physio plus 10 and thank you very much for being an awesome physio thank you very much doug that's very nice words and it's very nice to hear so thank you and it's my pleasure so good luck everybody thanks so much for listening to this episode of physio plus 10 in which I trust you gain some valuable insights. It'd be awesome if you could leave your two cents worth as a review or rating of this podcast, and I look forward to sharing the story of another trailblazing physiotherapist with you in two weeks' time. Stay safe. Bye for now.